Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. I'm Kurt Heelan, managing editor of the NBA page at NBC Sports with you as always. And today, look, I know the draft is coming up. I know free agency is coming. And look, we're going to get into all of that next week in a lot of detail. But this week, it's going to be a little trip down memory lane on the podcast, going back to the Shaq Kobe Lakers with former Sports Illustrated writer and just one of the great writers and novelists uh, around sports right now. Jeff Perlman has got a new book out about the Kobe Shaq Blakers, and we're going to talk to him about it. And then, again, next week we'll be back with draft breakdown, free agency, post-draft breakdowns, all of it. So first, well, let's get down. Let's start going down memory lane and let's talk to Jeff. And without further ado, here he is, Jeff Perlman, one of my favorite writers, and now the author of Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. Uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on the podcast. You know, all I'm doing right now as I speak to you is walking my new dog, and she was eating a metal wire. And, uh, <laughs> so I'm able to multitask and talk talk about my book and Yankee Metal Wire from my dog Poppy's mouth at the same time. <laughs> that is... <laughs> I my dogs now like now that we've settled into a routine they're kind of like you know look I've got three kids they're all schooling from home my wife's a teacher she's home but for a while they were getting walked like three times a day because people just wanted out of the house and now they're like hey where are all the walks man where what, what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly this is a puppy so she doesn't even know how to walk she just yeah, and you have to take them out like every twenty minutes to go to the bathroom yeah, exactly yeah we I, we moved in the middle of this and. Re, we had to. We've been in the process. I don't want to even say we're done yet if, of re, having to retrain the dogs. It's just been a, it's been a mess. Um, yeah. So dog poop. That's always a good podcast topic. We'll just we'll. Live with that one. Um, um, you've written on the Lakers before. I mean, you wrote the Showtime book, which was the Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul, Jamar, James Worthy gets overlooked too much. You know, Showtime Lakers book. Did this flow out of that, or was this something kind of separate? Um, I guess a little of both. I kind of always thought the, uh, the abrupt ending of that dynasty and kind of that book as well, which is magic announces he has HIV the end, um, lent itself to kind of a follow-up. Um, I, I, in my head, I always thought of this book as a sequel. I mean, you don't have to read Showtime to understand what's going on here, but I always thought of it as a, cause it, it begins with magic return, magic returning in 95. Um, you know, and, and, so I guess I always, I just always thought that book ended really abruptly and that story ended really abruptly and the turnaround of that franchise with the speed that they did, you know, drafting Kurt, well, uh, acquiring Kobe in the draft in 96, signing Shaq, 
then hiring Phil Jackson a few years later. It was just so quick yeah. that I just kind of thought it made an interesting follow-up book. Um, and I mean, you get into a lot of this, but I, 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 it's amazing for me when I think about it. And I live in Southern California and, and grew up a Laker fan. Um, that era, just, there's something about it. I mean, there's great players, obviously, on the Lakers now. They just won a championship. They've got LeBron. They're always kind of a story. <clears throat> but there's something about the Shaq Kobe Lakers that the dynamic of it that just draws people in. They still want to talk about it. They still want to hear it, not just in Southern California, but nationally. What, I'm, I've, I've never quite put my finger on what it is about that duo and that era that just draws us. Well, I think people like the idea of duos to begin with in sports, you know, like guys teaming <clears> up. and um, But usually they're not that interesting. Like if you think about it, like, uh, I don't know, David Robinson and Tim Duncan, not that exciting. You know, <laughs> Magic and Kareem, you know, Magic was the story. Like Magic was the headliner. Kareem was actually kind of boring, you know, and, and, and reclusive. Um, and I just think we like tandems when it's really good. We all, I remember being a kid growing up in New York and – I love like Gooden and Strawberry with the Mets. Like it was never yeah. just Gooden, it was never just Strawberries. Both of them, Gooden and Strawberry with the Mets. And I just think you had this tandem, and they were both really, honestly, at the at the peak of their abilities, and they didn't really get along that well. But they still won. So their personalities were so different, their skill sets were so different. They were really, really good, really, really volatile. So I just think. <clears throat> And they were on this team, the Lakers, and that's kind of the center of the NBA universe. So I just think there's a lot of there's a lot there uh, to talk about uh, that I think intrigues people. I think what else people kind of forget about this is that I mean, like you said, they draft or they don't draft again. They they I don't know if you how much you got into this, but they you know they con Calipari if you want. Uh, they oh. <laughs> they get in. They you know they pick up Kobe in the draft through the draft in in '96. They bring in Shaq. That team didn't win at first. I mean, it took them four years to win a title, but that team wasn't, they just weren't ready. I mean, was it Shaq and Kobe that weren't ready? Was the organization not ready? What wasn't ready in 96? Shaq was ready, right? But not everything else. Shaq was ready. Kobe wasn't ready. I mean, it's funny. Like, uh, I spent a lot of time with Dale Harris, who was the original coach. Yeah. Uh, You know, he was there in 96. And um, he wasn't funny. He wasn't invited to Kobe's final game as a Laker and I think he was generally insulted and I, th- I think it was just an oversight by the Lakers but I think he was right to be insulted like the, the role he played the patience he showed with the young Kobe Bryant was really impressive and really important um, he didn't just throw him in there he knew he had a lot of lapses he knew his defense wasn't up to snuff he knew if you put him in there he'd just want to shoot all the time um, and I, 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 I think if you look back at that first season 96-97 it was probably the most talented, if you just go pure talent, probably the most talented Laker team those two guys played on. You had Eddie Jones, you had Nick Van Exel, you had Shaq, and you had Kobe all at their heights. And that's four really, really exceptional players. Mm. But what I think later on you saw with Shaq and Kobe was what you really needed were good role players who could also kind of control a club, a locker room. So Eddie Jones was more talented than Rick Fox. You know, Nick Van Exel was more talented than Derek Fisher, than Brian Shaw. But the guys they brought in fit roles really well. And I think most GMs in any sport after a while, they'll tell you it's not a talent competition. It's a chemistry competition and building a team that works well together. So I just think they needed pieces, the right pieces, and they did not have them early on. 
when you're talking about controlling the locker room or or not being controlled by forces in the locker room, is that what you're ta- you're talking about the dynamic between Shaq and Kobe and there for Rick Fox and Derek Fisher and guys to be I don't want to say above it all, but not get sucked into a war. Yeah, well, I think if you if you have a bunch of young players around, um, they almost feel like they have to take a side or they have to be involved in it. And it becomes gossipy and it becomes uncomfortable and awkward. And all of a sudden you have Shaq guys and you have Kobe guys and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, Rick Fox wasn't going to be a Shaq guy or a Kobe guy. Robert Ory wasn't going to be a Shaq guy or a Kobe guy. Um you know, Brian Shaw, Rod Harper, Hart, Horace Grant, like they weren't, it didn't work that way. They were just guys who wanted to win and they were able to call out both of them and they were able to understand what they were thinking. And they brought in, if you look, I really think there are a lot of unsung heroes in that era. Like uh, in the Glenn Rice trade with Charlotte, where they, it was a bad trade. They gave up Eddie Jones from Glenn Rice, but they bring in J.R. Reed and J.R. Reed is this great <laughs> locker room guy or Phil Jackson's first year. He signs as their last man, John Sally. And John Sally is this great locker room guy. And they just had a lot of guys who they didn't take it all too seriously. They didn't get bogged down in the nastiness that could be the nastiness. They just were professionals. And I think there's there's something to be said for having pro. There's a reason veterans last beyond their expiration dates in professional sports because they have more value than just scoring baskets. That locker room, though, I mean, Phil, it definitely was, you know, like a, a Kobe and Shaq. I don't want to say camps, but sort of. Phil, though, I mean, there was a deference to Shaq, right? He was the bigger personality, and at least at that point, especially early in that run, the better player, right? Like, I mean, this was the most, the more dominant big man ever, as he likes to say, but in an era when you could post a guy up and throw the rock into him and let, and there was just no stopping him down there. Um, it, I think Phil seemed to give deference to him. Oh, 100%. I think it's really interesting. Like, uh, <clears throat> I've been asked a lot promoting this book, whether I think, you know, was it was what he walked into in L.A. similar to Chicago. And it was drastically different, drastically different, because in Chicago, Scottie Pippen was never trying to be Michael Jordan. You know, Tony Kukoc was never trying to be Michael Jordan. It wasn't like there was like a one and then someone trying to be number one. Like Pippen knew he was number two with the Lakers, with the Lakers. uh, Kobe Bryant wanted to be number one. He wanted to be what Shaq was. He wanted this whole stupid inane alpha thing you know that is this the dumbest thing in the in the world kobe wanted that you know he saw what iverson had and what vince carter had and guys like that and he envied that and you know shock was the greatest player in the world at that point and the most dominant force and it was really hard for kobe to sort of embrace that and understand that it's just really weird so i think what phil jackson had to deal with then was very very difficult it was and I think as fans, we tend to think of this relationship between Shaq and Kobe as something that really deteriorated over time. And it, it, it did to a degree, but it didn't exactly it didn't exactly start on fertile ground, right? Like this was rough from early on. Yeah, I mean, Kobe's, uh, they're actually, they're both really interesting characters. And, um, you know, like Kobe showed up for his first his first training camp and all the players introduced themselves and his introduction is my name's Kobe Bryant. I'm from lower Marion. Nobody here is going to punk me. And it was like, you know, <laughs> someone farted in the room. It was like, just like the worst way to introduce yourself first day. And, you know, Shaq really wanted, like really wanted to be a big brother type to younger teammates. And he wanted people to lean on him. He wanted to buy you your first suit, you know, and he wanted to take you out for dinner. 
And he did that, by the way. He did, he did that with multiple guys. Yeah, and Kobe didn't want that. Kobe just, and that, that's not a, it's not a criticism of Kobe. It's just not how he was built. He wasn't, he didn't want to be Robin to your Batman. You know, he, he just wanted to be a great player and he, he had very little patience. He didn't think he should be sitting on the bench that first year. He always thought the ball should be in his hand. Like you mentioned how uh, John Calipari kind of blew it with Kobe Bryant. I mean, the, the Nets almost took Kobe Bryant a number eight in the 96 draft and they wound up taking Kerry Kittles. It's a huge, huge mistake, but I could see Kobe Bryant going to the 1996 New Jersey Nets um, with Ed O'Bannon and Khalid Reeves running with him, and Calipari just saying, "All right, you're our guy." Just shoot. And Kobe Bryant, at age, you know, 18 years old, averaging 23 a game, but shooting 36 percent, and that becoming sort of his career and him becoming. There was a path. There's definitely a path where he's Carmelo Anthony, not Kobe Bryant, and. The Lakers are smart enough, and Phil Jackson was smart enough to really sort of try to run it all through Shaq as much as they could. And we, and it's, <clears throat> I think especially in the wake of his unbelievably tragic death, um, there's this mythology that's built up around Kobe and was before he had passed as well. And he, he of course, feeds into that or, or fed into that. But, I mean, he was, rookie Kobe was an impetuous guy right like it, this was not this was not someone easy to deal you mentioned that like the his introduction this was not somebody eager to take a e- eager to play that role he wanted to be he, like i said it was just it was not going to be easy to blend him in no um it's interesting he his work ethic was off the charts right and i actually think one thing that goes unspoken a lot with the young players is veterans feel threatened when a guy comes in and they he outworks them and I think there's definitely some of that with Kobe. You know, like, you're Nick Van Exel, or you're Eddie Jones, or you're Corey Blount, or whoever you are, and you're like, why is this guy staying after practice to shoot 500 jumpers? We just want to go out. You know, and like, there's definitely some of that too, which speaks to in positively of Kobe, that he busted his butt, and he wanted it worse than anyone else wanted it. Like, he really did. He wanted it so badly. Um, but at the same time, he lacked sort of the knowledge to understand why others didn't. You know, like, and he, he wasn't capable of understanding why someone else wasn't shooting 500 jumpers with him. Or, why, you know, there's a there's a moment in the book when Robert Ory and Rick Fox are out for dinner. And Robert Ory is drinking a beer. And this is the night before a game, not the night of the game. He's drinking a beer. And Kobe doesn't understand how this guy can be drinking a beer a night before they're playing a game. And they're just like, he actually says to him, well, how can you drink a beer? We're playing tomorrow night. And Robert Orr is like, okay, all right, Junior, uh, thanks. You know, he just didn't get it, and he uh, he just didn't really read it well. He didn't read situations very well. It was one of his flaws early on. What I've read, I, I, and I've, I've read, <laughs> I went and got the book and have been trying to power through it when I knew we were coming up to talk. Um, I, what I've gotten out of this is it's a nuanced view of Kobe. And that's, again, because of the mythology around him hasn't necessarily, especially here in, I think nationally, but certainly here in Southern California, um, Kobe is you know, the greatest Laker of all time type of talk, and, and we could really debate that. But um, you you come out with a much more nuanced and, and rounded picture of him. Did you get blowback for that? No, actually, I haven't. I thought I would, but I haven't. I mean, I explain in the book, and I've kind of, during promoting it, I've talked about how this is, it's not the kid who uh, 
Kobe Bryant at 22 is not who he was at 41. No. And people grow and they mature. And it's very true. Like, he was a kid. And if you think about it, I always say this. Like, in a lot of ways, he's sympathetic. He, um, I, I really mean that. He, you know, he was raised in Italy and he was raised in the suburbs of Philly in a very wealthy area. One of the few African-American kids wherever he was. He, um, he has a sneaker deal at 17 uh, and he skips college to go to the NBA at 17. He takes Brandy to the prom, the singer Brandy to the prom, uh, you know, a young woman he's never even met. And, you know, People Magazine is covering Kobe Bryant's prom. Like, he shows up in camp, he's 18 years old, he's cocky, he doesn't really know how to talk to people, he doesn't know how to engage with people. Like, what you saw back then, it's not like it was a kid trying to be a jerk. It was a kid who just didn't really get social norms and social cues and conversation. And he didn't know, like, hey, you know what, it might be a good to go out for dinner with your teammates like he didn't he didn't get it he thought why would i do that i'm supposed to be studying i'm supposed to be reading playbooks i'm supposed to be devising my world plan and i just think what you saw in a lot of ways the byproduct of that is someone who didn't really understand how to deal with people and that's not really his fault i mean he this is what his childhood was and i think you talked a lot about it, the the drive within kobe part of that shaq kobe feud was at the core of their beings, they approached basketball and even life very differently. Yes, I would agree. I also think, um, I think in a lot of ways, Shaq's reputation was unfairly marred during this time period. Like, uh, I always say this, and I, I, I thought about this a lot while writing the book and definitely while promoting the book. Like, you're Shaquille O'Neal, you're 27 years old, we'll just say, 28 years old. You spend the season having the crap kicked out of you. Everyone's throwing their big man and their power forward at you. You know, you're never getting looks. You're getting hammered. Every game, you can ice your legs out. Blah, 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 blah. The season ends, um, and you want to float in your pool. You want to smoke cigars, and you want to eat. That's normal. And also, like, you should be enjoying your life. You're not going to be 27 and rich and NBA star very long. So why shouldn't you enjoy it? And I just think people oftentimes compare it the way he approached it to the way Kobe approached it. And I just think... If I were advising someone how to live your life and when you're in the NBA, I would take the, the Shaquille way because your life doesn't last. Your This moment doesn't last that long and you're not going to be 27 and wealthy and famous and that doesn't last for long. So you got to enjoy it. I just think like he really is a good example of how to enjoy the ride. Could he have worked harder? Sure. Could he have probably lasted a few more years? Yes. Um, but I think his ride was phenomenal and he's still one of the greatest players of all time. And he's ridden that post-career into a that that persona into a is he making more money now than he did playing probably probably oh, by far because the endorsements he's just like the thing is like he always got likability and he also got he understood like how to wear your fame the right way you know i yeah i would say my we talk about this in our house like since the passing of muhammad ali who are the people who can walk into any room, can walk into a senior center in Nebraska, can walk into a birthday party in, you know, whatever, New York City could go anywhere and are recognized and loved. He's one of them. Yeah. You know, there aren't that many of them. He's one of them. He just has something about him that's magical. Yeah, and there's a certain, not only wanting to take time off and enjoy life, but the big kid soaking in life about him right yeah. like he's going he is going to take advantage of these opportunities with his kids with himself and and there's something he said for like you said i just i think as maybe as i get older too it's like i want to savor these opportunities more than i might have 20 years ago 
I agree, hundred percent. I think he was aware of that a long time ago. And I just think like, I mean, I'm sure you've had this because I've had this. When you interview athletes, and they'll say, you'll be like, are you are, are you able to enjoy this? You just won the World Series, and they'll say, well, I really think I'll really be able to enjoy it when I retire and I yeah. look back and blah blah blah. And it's like, no, like you have to enjoy the moment now. You don't get. You're not going to be 27 winning an NBA title that often. You're not going to be sitting on top of the world that often and looking back 20 years from now, it doesn't really work. It's not the same feeling. So I just think he understood something that a lot of athletes don't, which is these moments are fleeting and you have to embrace them. How does Phil Jackson fit into the dynamic of this relationship in that era? Well, I think it was really important. I mean, um, you know, yeah. Dale Harris was a great coach. Oh, yeah. A great coach. And... um but I think that he, they, the Lakers didn't really respect him and stopped listening to him after a while. He talked a lot. It was a flaw. He just went on and on and on. And Phil Jackson comes in. He's got the six rings, and he did it with Jordan. And he just had gravitas. And I think um, he was great about handling Shaq and Kobe. He wasn't hands-on. He wasn't a babysitter. Um, and I just think uh, they listened to him. And they kind of had stopped listening to Dale Harrison. Kurt Ramis had been the interim coach. They didn't really listen to him that much. And Phil Jackson had to listen to because he came in with the hardware. They, he's also known as the guy who does, you know, all the weird, you know, at the time they're talking about drum circles type of things and meditation and stuff. Were Kobe and Shaq buying into this or was it just they felt they had to because of Phil and then they started winning and you don't, you know, don't mess with the streak. I don't think any of them really. It wasn't like they were deep into meditation. Yeah. Um, I don't think any of them were really that into it. I, some of them more than others. There were a lot of, you know, I asked Shaq if you read the books that Phil gave him. And he's like, no. I mean, Shaq told me he didn't read his own book. He wrote a book with Mike Wise <laughs> of the Washington Post that he never read. So, um, you know, I, I just, no, but I just think what they liked about Phil Jackson was he was really smart, really cerebral. And he understood basketball. He came with a system that worked. And not only did he come with the system, he came with the inventor of the Tex winner. Right. You know, the triangle offense. So there's just a lot of authenticity um, that he brought with him. And, and, you know, by the end, it kind of wore down a little bit. and People got a little tired of it. But he was a perfect coach for the perfect players at the perfect time. And Tex gets to come in and kind of be the truth teller, right? Like he gets to get, he gets to, he gets to kind of be the harder edge on some of this stuff there where Phil smooths it over a little. Yeah. I mean, Tex Wiener was not, didn't take any trash from anyone. So like, um, you know, like he and Shaq had some real good battles where Tex Wiener would say to Shaq, you're too fat. What the hell is wrong with you? Get in shape. Or Kobe, stop shooting so many effing balls, you know, blah, 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 blah. And they were cursed back at him and he were cursed back at blah, blah, blah. And it was like, he was a, he was basically the grumpy, crusty old man. Um, but it worked because his, his system worked and also that triangle it's almost amazing in hindsight how well it worked in Chicago when your centers were Bill, Wedding, Bill Weddington and yeah. you know Bill Cartwright and Luke Longley because it was really meant to have a guy like Shaq in the center of it where when Shaq gets the ball down low teams have to react and have to respond and then you're going to have a lot of spacing and a lot of guys wide open so that offense with Shaq in the middle of it was was beautiful when when Kobe was willing to go along with it, and that was an issue a lot of times. Was you know Kobe never really loved the triangle. Did any guard really love the triangle? 
Um, I, I, uh, John Paxson, Steve Kerr, Brian Shaw, and Derek Fisher. Yeah, <laughs> but not not if you're a superstar. You no. don't want to do that. Yeah, I'll throw Gary Payton in the dislike category. Yeah, very uh, much hated it. Um, and that by the was way, a bad signing. Still didn't uh, even want him on the team. That was a terrible signing. By the way, just for the record, I am obligated to do this as a Long Beach State guy. That would be lo- former Long Beach State head coach Tex Winter. Just for the record. Oh, very nice. Yeah, very just, nice. Got to shout out Long Beach State occasionally when I get the chance. So, I, yeah. I haven't mentioned James Ennis yet in this podcast, but I'll work him in somehow. Um, I've been to the pyramid. I've been to the pyramid. <laughs> it's actually a pretty good venue for a for a good college for a fun college. It's weird. Game. We were confused by it when we moved here to California. That I took my son to the pyramid. It's a little confusing. It is. I'll tell you. I look forward to the day it rocks again in, during basketball games because it uh, when it's rocked most recently is when they were. They, Long Beach State won back-to-back national championships in men's volleyball, and they'd sell the place out, and it was nuts. And uh, I look yeah. forward to seeing that again for basketball. Uh, on to <laughs> back to some you you spend a, I don't want to say a fair amount of time, but you certainly delve into the the Kobe Bryant rape ch- uh, case in this. How does that impact Shaq and the relationship between Shaq and Kobe? Well, I mean, what what went really bad was when Kobe. Yeah, Kobe said to the detectives, "How come Shaq basically, basically said, how come Shaq's able to pay off women and pay women hush money and nothing happens to him?" And that gets back to Shaq, and that was a very, very uh, that was kind of a nuclear bomb to an already not good relationship. Yeah, um, yeah, no, terrible, terrible. Uh, I, I, it's amazing they were able to recover actually at all because that was a really that violent. That was like Nick Young, D'Angelo Russell times a million, you know. Yeah. Yeah, because it was the two biggest players on the team. It wasn't, you know. It was also involving a rape, you know, like it wasn't yeah. just involving, it wasn't just a cheating on your wife. It was an actual sexual assault, yeah. alleged. So. Um, um, how did how did this change Kobe? How did this affect him? As I mean, he comes out of this, uh, and your book probably doesn't totally get into this because he comes out the other side with the love me or hate me side of the, the personality. But how does this end up impacting him? The rape situation? Yes. I mean, you know, he almost went to prison. That's the, that's the thing that kind of gets overlooked. He, he almost went to prison, and I think if that case went to trial, he would have gone to prison. Um, I can't tell you how it impacted him long term. At the time, it almost made him in a weird way more unlikable in the locker room because he started kind of becoming almost like a me against the world kind of guy. And, you know, he was asked during that whole thing, he reported late to training camp for the 03 04 season. And um, he was asked by reporters, So are you going to be able to confide in your teammates about all that's going on? And he said, Why would I do that? You know? And then. At the same time, when he had yet to report, Kobe Shaq was asked, "Is it is it difficult not having your whole team here?" And he said, "My whole team is here." Um, it was a really awkward, uncomfortable time, and I just think he built a wall around him even more than he usually did. That was, you know, for for his uh, basically for Vanessa himself and his close family. I mean, at that point, he wasn't even talking to his parents anymore. So uh, I don't know. It was a He's a really complicated guy, like a really complicated guy. And um, it sucks because I feel like in his 40s, he was really starting to do some special stuff that had nothing to do with basketball, just as a dad and uh, as a creative person. And uh, I feel like the best Kobe Bryant was the one who, who sadly died, you know, where he really kind of 
he was a, a unique individual who just seemed to be enjoying life at a different level than when he was playing basketball. Yeah, and I think the book covers a portion of Kobe's life before, you know, like you said, you, you, this book doesn't get into the person he became the last few years, towards the end of his career and then after his career when he's when he's moving of, moving on and doing other things. That's uh, that, that can be your next book. I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll throw that out for yeah. you. <laughs> Wait, so they, I didn't hear that last part. I'm sorry. Uh, sorry, I just did... The book doesn't necessarily get into. I mean, the, the the evolution of Kobe. A lot of it just happens after the time frame of this book. Yes, I think so. It's it's funny. The book was done not funny, but the book was done before he died, and um, you know, he was ready to go. And then you know, he died, and I couldn't really add very much. And the only thing I added was a, a sort of a prologue at the beginning, or an author's note, whatever you call it. And it was basically discussing how. The guy you're about to read about is um, don't confuse him for the guy at 41, you know, and that we all go through a learning curve and we all go through a process of growth when we're young. And, um, you know, the Kobe Bryant of the Lakers of that time period isn't the Kobe Bryant uh, who we lost. It's just a kind of different guy altogether. You also got to write about, um, I think part of the fun of the book is like, you get to write about Mike Penberthy and, you know, Mark Madsen and some like how were the role players open to talking to you about this and like how much fun was some of their stories and some of that? Uh, I love the role players. They're always my favorite guys at home too, because they have fresh story. They were there for everything. They were part of everything, but they, um, but they don't, um, they haven't been asked it a million times. So like Pemberthy was awesome. And Pemberthy was a Laker for basically a year and a half. And he was amazing. Um, Kareem Russ was awesome. Was this great. Uh, Madsen, fantastic. Madsen had some of the best Shaq stories you ever hear just about buying him suits and trying to hook him up with Mormon women to marry. I mean, it's yeah. really funny stuff. Um, I love those guys. I mean, I would take, to me, the role players are vastly underrated when it comes to writing a book. Um, if anyone is listening and they're, they're considering writing a sports book, don't just go to the superstars. It's a huge mistake to find all the guys who are drafted and cut in camp, find the guys who played a year, find the guys who played six months, find the guys who came and went because they're all there and they're going to remember, you know, I always say, like, you know, I wrote Brett Favre's biography, and I used to say some free agent running back from Delaware State who was in Packers camp for a week, Brett Favre won't remember him, but that guy's going to remember every experience he had with Brett Favre. So those stories and those people are invaluable. Um, and those guys are not universally, but largely open to talking more sometimes, right? Like, that's it, just as a writer, like, it's the other guys in the locker room that are more likely to be open and they're just, they're not interviewed all the time. They're a little less guarded. hundred percent. And also like they haven't told the same stories a million times. Like yeah. how many times has Shaft told the story about, you know, getting the lob from Kobe in the Portland game, blah, 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 blah. But there were guys on the bench. There were trainers on the bench. There were guys on the floor. There were, you know, ball boys and blah, blah, blah. And all those people are there for it as well. And they all have their own recollections. So um, you can never go wrong talking to them. And they're much more likely to talk to you than the superstars. doesn't mean you won't get the superstars, but the bench guys are much, you know, like Mike Pemberth now is the shooting coach for the Pelicans. Um, you know, he comes, he goes, he's relatively unrecognized. He's thrilled to talk about this stuff. It's just fun. Kareem Rush, I met him out at a Starbucks in, in LA. He's like, well, I'm happy to talk. What do you want to talk about? So it's always easier and kind of more fun to get those guys. By the way, 
Penberth, he's done a sneaky good job on some of those guys with their him and, and another he's couple great. of years. Yes, their shooting has gotten a lot better in in, uh, in New Orleans uh, with Lonzo and and Brandon Ingram and a bunch of them, and uh, he, he gets some of that credit. There's some other guys on that yeah. staff too, but like he's also a great guy. He's a really nice human being. So it was, it was cool. And also, like I love those stories. Like he was a kid from Masters College, yeah. who bounced around, bounced around, was discovered. Um, the the Lakers uh, summer league they played in Long Beach and yeah. before the Lakers long uh, summer league games they had another summer league like kind of an amateur summer league and Mike Pemberthy was playing for the Slam Magazine team in the summer league and Jim Clemens a Lakers assistant coach just happened to be watching and he saw Mike Pemberthy and he's like we should invite this guy to camp and that's how Mike Pemberthy got a look for the Lakers that's kind of wild that's just that's <laughs> It's. I don't know that that happens as much anymore either. Like, and it's not just that summer leagues become a commodity. Um, and yeah, it, it, I agree. Um, hey, I want to say also, like, what I love about that, like, Mitch Kupchak was the GM of the Lakers, and they signed Mike Pemberthy, and they say he says to him, "You know, you've just you've earned this. I hope you enjoy your week in camp." And Mike Pemberthy's like, "Go to hell, man! I'm not. If I'm just here for a week, I'm going to go off." And he 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 was so pissed. And motivated that Mitch Kupchak, Mitch Kupchak was basically like, "You'll be here for a week, and then we'll probably cut you." That he just went off, and he wound up making the Lakers. And then he meets the Lakers, and um, he doesn't own a suit. And Shaq says to him, first game, he he's wearing a jacket he bought from Banana Republic. And Shaq goes, "Do you own any suits?" And Pemberthy's like, "No." And he's like, "Come back tomorrow." And Shaq's there, and his personal uh, tailor is there, and he fits Penberthy for six suits and buys them for him. Uh, that's. That's such a great story because it just also speaks to some of the stuff we talked about with Shaq. This was a guy who's generous of not just money, generous of time, generous of heart as a personality and still is. Mm -hmm. And he was beloved by teammates in a way Kobe never was. Kobe inspired some people, but he wasn't beloved in that locker room quite the same way. It wasn't his style. It wasn't who he was. Yeah. That's not an insult to Kobe. There are very few Shaqs. I mean, yeah. I mentioned Brett Favre. I always thought Brett Favre would be the best teammate, superstar teammate I ever wrote about as far as just being generous and decent and kind and engrossing. And I would say Shaq was even better. I mean, you know, he uh, he literally offered, when Mike Pemberthy's dad died, he offered to pay for his dad's funeral. Um, they had a guard out of Penn State named Joe Crispin, who was their 12th man. And Shaq uh, flew in his parents and I think his sister for his first game, first class, because he wanted his, his family to be there to see his game. He just was, you know, he would go around L.A. asking around for Mormon women to set up Mark Madsen. <laughs> um, he's just one of a kind. He really is. He's one of, I tell you, what, I was interviewing Shaq in Atlanta in the Turner Studios for the book. And midway through the interview, his his uh, phone rang and it was his daughter FaceTiming. Um and uh, I guess somebody knew his mother had died, and Shaq said to her, "Make sure I make sure I get the bill for the funeral. I'm going to pay for the funeral." And he wasn't saying that to impress a reporter. Like it just seems who the guy is. He's just really generous and really decent. And again, the thing with with Kobe and Shaq is, I think Shaq just wanted Kobe to kind of want it and appreciate it and embrace it. And it wasn't really in Kobe's nature. He just wasn't that guy where he was looking for love and a big brother. So I think that caused a lot of the strain. How did Phil Jackson treat the role players? Like, how was that relationship? It kind of depended who it was. There were guys, like I talked to Tracy Murray was on the late. Oh, yeah. UCLA. uh, UCLA. And he was like, 
Phil Jackson had no time for me whatsoever. You know, there's certain guys who are like, Phil Jackson had no time for me. Phil Jackson had no interest in me. But if you talk to Rick Fox, Rick Fox freaking loved Phil Jackson. Robert Murray loved Phil Jackson. If you were of use um, to you and he valued you, I think overall he was really good with them. There were some guys who didn't like it who thought he was kind of arrogant and aloof, which he could be. Um, I think generally he was pretty good. This all kind of comes... You know, it all comes crashing down pretty quick, right? That 2004 team, I, I'm honestly still of the opinion that that team probably wins if Carl Malone's healthy. But, we'll, you know, we'll never know. I, I, I think that was certainly a very good Pistons team with Chauncey Billups playing out of his head and, and, and a fantastic defense. Um, and then it just it just got to the point where somebody had leverage, right? Well, I mean, it was a weird season altogether. I mean, Kobe's flying back to Colorado. Shaq wants his contract renegotiated. Phil Jackson doesn't know if he's coming back or not, and he's dating the daughter's daughter of the owner. Um, they bring in Carl Malone and Gary Payton to form the so-called super team, but, you know, Payton is a horrible fit. Yeah. Malone is good, but, you know, he gets hurt. Um, and Kobe, you know, Kobe was planning on leaving for the Clippers. He made it clear, I'm not coming back if Shaq is back. There's no way I'm coming back if Shaq is back. And Jerry Buss had to make a decision. Am I keeping... He could have kept Shaq and Phil. I, I think Phil would have come back. Or he could have kept Kobe. But I don't think you could have kept all three. Like, every now and then someone would say, what would happen if they all stayed? I would say they couldn't have all stayed. It wasn't going to happen. Shaq, Kobe was not playing with Skiono anymore. Um, actually, Kareem rushed home after they... Uh, after they lost to Detroit in Game 5 and that series ended, they had a team function, and Kareem Rush, who was Kobe's backup, is sitting there at this restaurant, and Kobe walks in and he says, I'm never playing with that mf again, talking about Shaq. So when Kobe re-signed, he was asked at the press conference, did Shaq leaving have anything to do with you being here? He said, no, not at all. And it's just, I'm not speaking of the dead to say it's not. it wasn't true. Like, he, he was not coming back. He was going to be a clipper. And for Jerry Buss, the idea of having this guy you develop from age 18, the face of your franchise, play in your building in the other team's uniform was unthinkable and unbearable. And I, I whatever you think of Kobe, whatever you think of Shaq, I don't think you can argue he made the wise decision. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. And again, nothing against Shaq, who goes on to win a ring with, with Dwayne Wade and all that, but and, and or make some plays, but that's just not the same, right? Like that, mm-hmm. Shaq was already starting on a decline then Kobe's ascendance I mean his MVP season probably maybe some of his best seasons and frankly maybe some of Phil's best coaching I mean I still think Phil's best coaching might have been the year he got a team that started Smush Parker and Kwame Brown to the playoffs like I don't know (laughs) those are not great NBA stars here but Phil you know, Phil came back and, and obviously wins more rings there, but you had to keep Kobe. Kobe, you just you absolutely had to keep Kobe at that point. Yeah, I agree. I also think if you look at the teams they won with, forget even making the playoffs. I mean, the the Pau Gasol, Lamar Odom, Kobe teams, they were great. Yes, teams. like if they weren't they weren't all time great NBA teams by any means. And I think it said a lot about Kobe and his ability to adjust a little and to sort of be more of a leader it says a ton about phil jackson winning with that because people are always like all right you he won with pippen and jordan he won with shaq and kobe but those championship teams he had one superstar and two really really good players lamar odom and paul gasol and i you could say some other okay players but like 
I thought that was his best coaching job when he won with those teams, especially after Kobe didn't even want him back and then decided, oh, wait, I actually need him back. So, you know, Phil Jackson's all-time great. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, and with those teams, ultimately, and, and this beyond the scope of the book, you ended up with versatile players and flexible players, right? Like, that evolved more towards what the NBA has become now with guys like Lamar Odom. And, and Pau Gasol, peak Pau Gasol, could do a lot. He could step out. He could do a lot of things that that became interesting. So, yeah, I agree. I agree, hundred percent. Jeff, this has been this has been great. It's been so much fun to talk to you. I hope I'm glad you and your family are doing well and uh, enjoying life here in Southern California, man. I, the book, again, for you better have been listening. We've been doing this for half an hour. Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Laker dynasty, which you can get anywhere. You can go to Amazon, but do us all a favor, me. Go to your local independent bookstore. Get it there. Have them order it for you. If you're going to have to order online, go to Powell's.com. Go to one, through one of the independents, or you can get it through Amazon. Or Jeff will, Jeff will be happy. You, you can buy it anywhere, Jeff. Jeff, You'll make Jeff happy. And we're doing a special deal now. If you buy two, you can buy the third also. So it's a good deal. <laughs> that's, that's an awesome deal. <laughs> yeah. And to fit the rest of my life, I because I am in a book club, I, I don't know the last time I listened to or, or read the entire book, man. Like, I've, sadly, I've... A listening on runs is now how I get through yeah, books. Okay. So, um, it's this book is also on audio, of course, and audible and all that stuff. So, yep. thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again next week with that little thing called the NBA draft and <laughs> some other fun stuff. Jeff, thanks again for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. All right, um, we'll be back next week with another edition of the Pro Basketball Talk podcast here at NBC Sports. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.